Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stemmel Major. And in this episode, we're going to be doing one of our questions and tangents episodes. Um, it's something that seems to be quite popular. You send me the questions, I answer them to the best of my abilities, and then just spirit myself off onto some crazy tangent uh, when I start running out of actual facts. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to kick into uh, a couple of comments which you got actually over on the uh, YouTube channel. Um, it's been very interesting as I've started to try and push more of the things going on on YouTube um, and starting to realize like where the stuff I make fits into the YouTube sailing ecosystem. You know, there are all sorts of different people who are in the sailing scene on YouTube, but they come at it from completely different angles. And it's interesting to try and work out which one of them I am, you know. Um, there's obviously there's those people doing lifestyle vlogs. And there's lots of bikinis and trips to the bar and, and you know, dinghy rides, uh, the kind of stuff that we'd love to see when people are down in hot, sunny areas. There's people doing high adventure, often in higher latitudes, amazing scenery, really remote places, and sailboats obviously giving a unique perspective on, on what's going on there. Places like the east coast of Greenland, Iceland, uh, through the Scandinavian countries. Um, there's people that are fitting out boats. Uh, fixing boats and learning about sailing right at the very beginning of it and then there's like professional sailing videos of you know the gp45s of the volvo 65s that kind of stuff so i'm trying to work out like where do i fit into that and i'm starting to kind of nestle my nestle my way into that somewhat and i i, I tried to start to carve out a bit of a niche for myself by uh, doing a reaction video to uh, eric andera's video encountering a force 10 storm now if you don't know eric he's got a fantastic youtube channel called no bullshit just sailing um, he has some incredible videos of him and his 35 foot contessa i believe going out in all sorts of weather all around the part of the world where uh, eric lives which is in norway and obviously you've got the fjords it's beautiful beautiful part of the world but this video was sent to me by one of my uh, patreon uh, supporters who said take a look at this how does this uh, sort of match up for you in terms of safety, in terms of seamanship and uh, and the decision that Eric took to go out in such very, very strong weather? And um, what I did, I, I wanted to give uh, Eric uh, full respect for the video he created. Um, I think it's really cheap when someone puts a huge amount of effort into making a video and then somebody's doing a reaction to video and all they're doing is sitting on the sofa uh, coming up with bigger, uh, big ideas, big opinions. So I did my reaction video whilst I was at sea on the Maxi on the 80, 80 foot boat uh, Osprey, sailing solo from the UK to Iceland and was in very heavy weather at the time. So I was able to take the camera up on deck and say, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to do a reaction to this video from the point of view of someone who's pretty experienced in this sort of stuff. So that's the background. Um, the uh, overwhelming um, support that I got for that was brilliant and it got a lot of new views on on, uh, on the YouTube channel, trying to grow that and uh, got people subscribing to the podcast and all that kind of stuff. Excellent, brilliant. But also, of course, you then start to expose yourself to what always happens when anybody goes uh, on the internet and is involved with anything online is that lots and lots of opinions start to surface. And uh, I think in this video, I said that Eric was... Uh, not so experienced or inexperienced or something. Um, certainly from my point of view, I'm at a bit of a, a weird place on the graph as an outlier with a lot of miles, over 300, 335, 340,000 miles now. Um, 
So anybody, even if you've got 50 or 100 or 150 or 200, are less experienced you know, just looking at the empirical mathematics of my situation. Um, I said also that I, I questioned the, the, the sense of, of taking such a small boat into such heavy weather. And whilst I didn't have anybody like railing on me or piling on, um, you know, really making a problem for me, there were certainly people who came out strongly in favor of Eric taking on this uh, challenge. And uh, I thought that's an interesting place to start for this questions and tangents. Um, I know there's a book called 35 Foot is Enough by Lynn and Larry Pardee. It certainly is enough for many, many situations. I think my question mark over that video is, is this a good idea to do this with a 35, 36 foot boat? Um, certainly if you look at like the background of these kinds of boats, the manufacturers themselves are not saying that they can go into that kind of weather. And we know this for a fact because during the inception of the Golden Globe race that set off in 2018, where uh, Ian McIntyre brought together uh, a fleet of contenders looking to vie for the Golden Globe Award as it was sailed in, or Golden Globe race rather, as it was sailed in 1969, making Sir Robin Knox Johnson the first person ever to sail solo around the world. But the world has learned a lot about sailing since then. And not all of the boats that were in that fleet, most notably things like Joshua, which was 50 foot long and piloted by Bernard Mottisier, um, not all of them were like 35, 36 foot. So when the initial concept of the Golden Globe race came out and the, the limitations on the boats that were able to enter were announced, I, I kind of had to scratch my head somewhat because... Um, basically a 36 foot rustler was the, the best possible boat, big, deep keel, um, solidly built sloop rig, um, could be a, a sloop or a cutter on the, on the front of it. Um, it was, you know, a, a, a boat which has taken many people around the world can done thousands and thousands of miles, but is it a good boat to go into the Southern ocean? Now we know what we know about going around the world in those kind of conditions. Is it a good idea to take a 35 foot boat out into a uh, force 10 storm for a YouTube video? And it was good because Eric Andera, whose video I was reviewing actually got in contact and um, had said that uh, only three weeks after shooting that the steering cables on the boat snapped in unexpected circumstances. And had that happened during the little incident he had on that voyage where he starts steering off towards the rocks and getting blown towards the rocks and it's getting a little bit out of hand if it had happened at that point then he you know he would have been lost um but a lot of people very very supportive if not a little bit kind of um defensive what have you of uh of that decision go out in a boat like that and very keen and very quick to say that um a boat of that size can sort of take anything and i i've i've had to deal with this a lot during my sailing career certainly in the last say 10 or 15 years when I've been on boats which are 60 foot plus where people feel that because some people have gone around the world on smaller boats that therefore smaller boats can go around the world and equally what you could say is that people have been around the world on marina boats like some Benetos and boats which are designed to be sitting in marina and offer big wide luxurious spaces on deck and below those boats aren't suited to go into the southern ocean either so there's a particular kind of boat that can go and being very heavy weather and there's boats that can't <clears throat> and you can't decide it based on their length and you can't really you can't decide it on um you can't decide it on many factors unless you've been there and seen it for yourself and then you can make your own judgment about what you do and don't want to do with your time right 
So the at the time of the Golden Globe, when that happened, there was a lot of criticism. Now, the race passed off without anybody losing their life, but a lot of injuries, a lot of um, boats uh, had to, and, and skippers had to abandon the race. And in the end, really, it was just a race between uh, Mark Slats, the Dutch competitor, and um, Jean van den Heed, who came first. And there was weeks between them, and they were the only people really out of uh, 17, I believe it was 17, that started that race. So massive attrition rate. Does that then give us evidence that you can sail around the world because two people managed it? That feels like confirmation bias. I think we can maybe look at the number of people that tried to enter the race, the number of people that tried to finish the race, and then have a look at how many people did it, and then make a decision whether it was the right kind of boat or not. Um, the manufacturers of that, that kind of category of boats, the boats that were selected to be admissible to that race, they all, to an individual, came out and said, this is not what our boats are designed for. They're pr primarily coastal boats and that we wouldn't rate them for this kind of work. That's, uh, I remember when I sailed um, X yachts in the 2008 or something, the X41 was new out and it had a big uh, aluminum grid in the floor, which the keel bolted to and which um, really gave a huge amount of extra stiffness to the boat. And those boats are built to the marine survey um, uh, stipulations, scantling uh, specifications for Bureau Veritas. And uh, they're only rated to a force 10. So if you're going into the Southern Ocean, you're gonna see more than a force 10. So one of the most modern boats, more modern than they were allowing into the Golden Globe race. And uh, still of that very small size, um, its manufacturer said only Force 10 and all the other manufacturer of those other boats of the Golden Globe race, including the Rustlers, said this is not what it's designed for. Jean van den Heed, when he went and built his boat, remember he, already a very experienced sailor, holds the West around the world solo non-stop record. He uh, put a, another bulkhead in his boat and made waterproof compartments uh, in the stern section and reinforced for, a, for um, inner force stay as basics of what he needed to do to take that boat offshore. Not all competitors did that stuff. Do they have enough bilge pumping capacity? And I don't just mean like drop in red and white plastic electric bilge pumps that are really not going to do anything in the uh, the event of a, a serious incident, as long as they stay unclogged, as long as the battery voltage stays up, as long as there isn't any blockage in the outgoing pipe, as long as the downstream uh, obstructions to flow like one-way valves, like, um, like uh, loops in the system, as long as those don't reduce its capacity too much, it should be okay. But normally what happens is electric bilge pumps are quickly overwhelmed by the reality of a flooding incident. So unless you've made a huge number of changes to these boats, they don't have the, the, the safety stuff that a, a boat built for the Southern Ocean would have, like an Open 60 or like a Clipper boat or a Volvo boat. Um, and they're very small, which means that they can be thrown around and badly damaged by what's going on in the Southern Ocean because they can't go at the speed of the waves. You know, one of the things that happened in the Golden Globe race is that Bernard Mortissier basically shuffled in a new era in sailing when he cut free those lines from the back of Joshua and stopped doing what sailors had done for, you know, hundreds of years, which is slow the boat right, right down, have a double-ended boat so the wave splits around the back of the boat. Suddenly he set off on a new era of surfing the waves, so trying to stay on the waves and stay in cycle with the waves so that you reduce the amount of uh, work cycles that your gear has to go through, which massively reduces the chances of something failure. So staying on the waves and going at wave speed is like a basic concept of being in the Southern Ocean when you get onto what we call the Southern Ocean conveyor belt, which is when you are flicking in and out of the tops of those big um, 
clockwise rotating lows, which are in the southern hemisphere, coming from South uh, South America, rolling across the bottom of the Atlantic. You come down south enough so you're in that westerly wind, and then if it gets too much for you, you can dive to the north, get out of the path of the bigger storm that might be coming, and then turn and come back onto that line of latitude that was giving you good performance previously. So the ability to move out in the way of weather and to stay in sequence on wave trains are things that you can only do when you're at about 60 foot wavelength. That's why 60 foot boats race through the oceans now primarily. And if it's uh, things like a globe 40 race with the open 40 race, sorry, the uh, class 40 races, those boats can surf at enough speed to be up on the waves because they're so light because of the, 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 the height of their rigs, the size of their sails, the deepness of their keels, they're very stable. They can be rolled and rolled themselves back over. Um, there's a lot more built into them. I think that a class 40 is about the minimum you want to be sailing safely around the world, you know, south of the three storming capes. And yet we've got races that go and do it on boats which are um, rated by their manufacturers as being coastal or near coastal boats. So when I say in a video that uh, i do not not sure if it's a good idea to take a boat like that into it, and then I get pushback on that. I find that I'm still like, I'm still trying to find my niche. <laughs> it's, I guess I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people who are pretty sure that they're absolutely certain about what they think they know about. And uh, all I have is like, well, I've, I've been doing this a long time and nothing serious has gone wrong. So it's a, it's a tricky one and a path I'm having to uh, find my way down. And the best advice, you know, as you know, I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. He's always don't read the comments because you'll start trying to create content that is for the audience that you perceive where that may take you in a direction that's not positive for you in terms of your mental health as a creator because you're trying to create things all the time that you don't really agree with and it won't take your creativity into a good place because you're just being pushed around by the crowd. So I'm going to keep doing the, the things that I, I do and I always try and keep it very positive about other people's uh, contributions to this stuff. I've got a very small YouTube channel and uh, really just trying to seek out how to make that uh, better how to make that my uh, sole kind of uh, source of income really focusing on it in 2023 and um, I think someone like Eric uh, Andera has got lots to to teach me because he's, his cinematography is amazing compared to the videos I make it's just mine are like poor adverts compared to uh, the stuff that he's producing it's really worth a, a look if you are looking across uh, YouTube so yeah the comments that I was getting there in the end I was I was interested to kind of receive them and then in the end I decided to kind of like not really say much about it. I guess what I'll do in the end is point people towards this podcast episode and say, if you want to hear my comments on it at length. The problem is now is that if you're trying to write back to somebody in a comment on uh, YouTube, like how much time are you going to, there's a, there's a subtle amount that you can write. And if you go beyond that amount, it's too long. Didn't read, you know, if you're into like your 10th line of your response to a comment on YouTube, you know, you've gone too far and you can't, you can't, you can't flesh things out with enough nuance in less than 10 lines. So the best answer is do nothing or create some other kind of content in this sort of format where it can be discussed at, at greater length. But I think any sailor who is saying it's going out in a 35 foot boat, however well equipped that boat is. I remember in one of them, they, uh, one of the comments said uh, he gets given all the latest gear by all the manufacturers like Raymarine. It's like, I'm not sure that <laughs> Raymarine are necessarily looking at the rig on his boat and looking at the massive flex in his forestay as these huge gusts of wind come down, the jibs going every which way. It's like, I'm not sure how many Raymarine instruments you have to have on board before one of them says this is not a good idea, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested to do more with Eric. He himself is very easily accessible and, and very aware 
of different levels of, uh, of sailors. I'm sure he wants to learn things and teach things. It's a fantastic resource. And I was having an idea and wondering if there's a way to connect with um, Eric and then connect with other YouTubing sailors. And like we all have devices, i.e. our boats, and we all have machines that allow us to go wherever we kind of want to go, right? So why not create a meetup somewhere? Is it? I wonder if that's a possible thing to do. If there's people in the Caribbean, there's people on the east coast of the US, there's people around Scandinavia and that kind of stuff. Is there some way that that North Atlantic Caribbean kind of group of folks could could see themselves right? I don't know, Bermuda, is that a good idea? Nova Scotia, like where's where would people come to? It's easy to come to to get together, to raft together, to, you know, to collaborate and, and learn and, and share things about sailing. I'd like to see more of that in the sailing space on YouTube. That The area where it's like um, bikini-clad girls is very, very popular, but it's more like vlog and people and places than actual learning about sailing. And a lot of the individual YouTube uh, creators are very isolated wherever they are in the world. And they, you don't see them like go and meet up with other YouTubing sailors very often. And yet you would think it would be a a simple thing to do all the car shows on youtube do that stuff all the time so yeah, maybe there's a call for that but learning to deal with um <clears throat> uh, comments coming from hundreds of people around the world all uh, giving you their input on what you last said is something new to me and something interesting to try and uh, find my find my way around it's uh, it's a it's a crazy world now that we um <laughs> we have to deal with this kind of thing Okay, let's have a quick uh, see. We've got a, a, quite a few uh, emails here today, which we can uh, we can get into. Um, first one here from uh, Philip Crone. He says, hey, brother, I hope is all is well. I used your episode about John Ray to do research for my own podcast. I usually struggle quite a bit finding podcasts that are listenable and well done. But, I, uh, uh, but when I go into the podcast world for information, oh, I see. But I found yours right away and got a lot of great info from it. Thanks so much for having a good show. Um, happy to happy to help out. Uh, if you've not heard that one, um, uh, the story of Dr. John Ray, who was one of the people that uh, helped finally open the Northwest Passage going across the top of Canada and the US, uh, potentially a quicker way of getting from Europe to China, something that people were extraordinarily keen to find, particularly at the end of the 19th century. The, we come to the end of the Napoleonic Wars in the UK. We had a massive navy, loads of enlisted men and officers, and there was kind of nothing for them to do. So the chance of finding this highly lucrative trading route across the top of Canada was something that a lot, I think it was like 200 different uh, expeditions that went looking for it, but kept getting into a disasterville situation when the boats would get uh, pinched in the ice and then the boat would be crushed and everybody would be either out on the ice or drowned immediately. And uh, John Ray is a pivotal figure in uh, opening up the Northwest Passage to that in 1904. Um, uh, Roald Amundsen could take uh, a boat through there. The Joa went through there for the first time. It took two seasons to get through, but they made it through for the first time. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's episode 44 uh, titled The Northwest Passage. So yeah, interesting there. But uh, but other emails uh, coming in as well. Who else have we got here? Let's have a quick look. Um, this one from uh, Iso Kant. It says, hi, Chris. Uh, I just wanted to send you a thank you. I recently discovered your podcast and now also your Rare Nautical Reads. We just changed the name to the Mariner's Library, of course, but um, the Rare Nautical Reads podcast. Uh, I was trying to find a copy of Creelock's book. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely loving both and also learning a lot from the Mariner. Two years ago, the seeds of a dream for offshore sailing were planted by Sailing Uma on YouTube. Brilliant show. And quickly, my better half and I found an old westerly Corsair after dinghy sailing a 420, uh, wasn't enough, to fix up ourselves and start sailing. Now we're three weeks away from getting our Pacific Seacraft 40 
one we tracked down in Europe from Marine Engineer and Delivery Captain, who has just done it all out himself on the refit. And uh, we'll be setting off at the beginning of October to Madeira, the Azores, and then we'll see from there. Just a big thank you for the content you create. It's much appreciated. Hey, absolutely. ISO and Maggie, wherever you are now, it's a little bit older, this uh, email, but um, wherever you are, I hope that you are well and enjoying your uh, Seacrest, no, Seacraft 40. Mm, going to have to ask some questions. If you're listening to this, we need pictures and we need details of what is a Pacific Seacraft 40. It seems like it's uh, something you're really enjoying. Um, yeah, look, I love making this content. And as I've said before, I'm uh, now looking to get into doing this all the time. It's not insurable. It's not possible to do that. Uh, um, the uh, pay to play deal that we had going before with Spy and Ocean Racing. So I'm all about uh, creating this content. And as I say, trying to find my my niche within sailing uh, online and uh, and what it is I can bring to it. I've done quite a lot of miles. I hope that experience is something which is, is useful. And uh, as always, try and keep it so that Everybody from the most experienced to the least experienced can access what we're talking about. Uh, sailing, unfortunately, is way too filled with uh, with jargon. But um, yeah, hope you guys are enjoying yourself wherever you are. Another one here from John Mama. Um, jo- uh, jo- Hi, John. Uh, he says, hello, Chris. Having just ridden out Hurricane K in Puerto Escondido in Mexico, maximum wind speed of 72 knots. We had six different head sails on various boats, four of them unattended, blowout. Wow. So it must have unrolled off their uh, roller falling jib uh, things. Wow. With all of the collective sailing knowledge here, it was still a rather extensive head scratcher about how exactly to solve the problem and get the destroyed sails down. Oh, you're telling me. During a lull in the storm, I and two others managed to get two of the incredibly noisy and dangerous monstrosities down and onto the deck through a combination of alternating tension on each sheet and the halyard, but none of us could really figure out why it eventually worked. We did not cut any sails in half or anything as seemingly obvious because clearly no one could get up high enough to do that, uh, uh, to do what at least looked appropriate. I see. I'm sure you have experienced this yourself and perhaps can elucidate on this subject, which will eventually probably at least be seen by most of your sailing audience. And perhaps some thoughts on how to prevent it beyond the obvious, not leaving a boat unattended with all sails up in a hurricane zone using a spare halyard to wrap the jib in the opposite direction seems to be highly thought of good question wow okay john let's have a think about this what do we know about heads let's focus on head saws and not uh, mainsails although there's something here which we could say which is you've got to secure the mainsail as well right but it's the jib it's the jib that normally goes completely wrong the first thing is yeah is wrapping a spinnaker or a um a jib halyard around it and wrapping it the opposite way and then securing it at the bottom and securing it off to something at the side. Um, I, I struggle to say the um, the pulpit. There shouldn't be really that much difference in strength between the pulpit on the size boats that I've got and the pulpits on a 35, 40 foot boat. You know, the kind of diameter of metal that's involved, it's pretty strong, but the boat that it's attached to is is very strong as well. I'm worried about smaller boats, you know, if there's factors here that could actually drag the pulpits out the deck. But that halyard needs to come down, wrap round, round, around, then it needs to go off to the side and attach to something. It can't be attached to the uh, the the headsail rolling gear itself because if the rolling gear gets loose, like the sheets come loose or the sheets snap or whatever, um, it's just going to wrap. It's just going to roll around with this thing and unroll itself. Right as soon as you get a couple of 
uh, turns in that headsail without it secured to the sheets, it's just going to, um, if the, the, the halyard has been brought down and attached to the, the furling gear itself, it's often people bring it down, attach it to the, the drum at the bottom, it just unwinds itself. So it's got to come down, then it's going to come off to one side, to a cleat, to the, to the pulpit, to something, out onto the bowsprit, down onto a pad eye on the foredeck, so that it's absolutely held in position, it cannot move. Beyond that, um, the other way of doing it is to take the sail down, obviously. The other way of doing it is to have a headsail sock that it goes into, which you have this kind of uh, big piece of material which you hoist up with a halyard and it's got a, a zipper or clips or Velcro or something running down the front of it. And when it's done and it's on, you cinch down the last bit of it and then it just, you know, it can't come off. But they're incredibly expensive because you have to buy like a lot of material to make that happen. The zipping and everything is very expensive. Right? The Velcro is expensive. Um, let's uh, see. I would say the halyard trick is probably the best. I would say, um, let's have a think about this. I would get, I would get the halyard that you're going to use to pull down and and wrap around. That's that's one piece of rope, right? And then I would get another piece of rope, which is one and a half time. No, it's, is is more than twice the length of the forestay. And I'd put a uh, bowline on the bite in the middle of it. And then I'd hoist it up the rig on the halyard that you've got available that you were thinking of wrapping around it. Now you've got two ropes. And then I would do maypole dancing around the forestay. I would wrap one of them going clockwise and one of them wrapping anti-clockwise. And they will stabilize each other completely. And then when those two lines get to the deck, I take them off to strong points on the deck, on the bowsprit, on the pulpit, on the cleats, on anything where they are off to one side. And I'd be finishing it off with like a hitch at the bottom. So there's no there's no torsional force that can undo it. And that's what I'm thinking if you wrap two round like Maypole style, one going clockwise, one going anti-clockwise, then, then even if it tries to rotate one way, that'll be held by one line. If it tries to rotate the other line, it'll go the other way. You've got one halyard at the mast, but of course you can pull something else up there, something that's going to really secure the jib totally now i guess the other place to go with this is uh if it does get out of control what do you do next and there's a couple of ways that um roller furled headsails get out of control one of them is that the line that secures the bottom of the uh stay you know the one that's on the drum it gets out of control it gets snapped it, it braids whatever happens to it and the sail undoes in the way that you'd expect it to right down unrolled to the foil being exposed the full size of the sail is exposed and the sheets are holding on to it and it's creating a massive parachute that's rocking the boat all over the place. We've all seen those. The, the sails blow out to shreds pretty quickly. I think perhaps what John's getting at is that uh, what will happen sometimes is that the sheets are still in position and the line on the furling drum at the bottom is still in position. Nothing's changed, but the sail wasn't very tightly wound on to the stay. And now the, the top of it, the bit above the sheet, is starting to unroll. It's got enough looseness in there that it starts to bag out. And then suddenly it starts to unwrap itself off the stay. And I've seen that happen once on um, the Whitbread 60 that we had uh, Challenger. We were going out of, where were we? We were going out of Connecticut, out through Long Island Sound. And uh, we came out of Westbrook into like 40 knots. We were beating across Long Island Sound with a, I think in the direction we were going and we were on the beat hard. So I guess it was blowing from the southeast about 35, 40 knots. And we're trying to beat into it um, to get out past Block Island and get out into the Atlantic and actually head towards the 
um, the uh, Canary Islands, it would have been. I think it was November when we were doing it. So uh, we set off and like, you know, it's heavy seas and we're motoring out and that's fine. And we start to get to a bit of like, okay, we can get a bit of an angle here and let's try and get some sails out. Let's sail and motor and make our way up against this breeze. And the jib started just pull out at the top. There's so much had happened to that boat during that time. The mast had been out, the keel had been off, the rudder had been out. So many big things had been correctly dealt with but one thing that hadn't been correctly dealt with was that in light of the amount of wind that there was outside the jib had not been rolled onto the stay tightly enough and uh it started to undo at the top and i remember hours trying to deal with that literally hours and the, the problem you've got is that the the line at the bottom the the, the furling line is useless now because if you try and unlock if you try and try and open the sail then it's not helping the fact that the bits above the sheets are loose in a way which now is separate from what's going on beneath the, the, the height of the sheets, beneath the height of the clue, and the bit between the clue and the tack of the sail is still rolled onto the stay, and the bit above the clues is is out of control, like out of control to the point that I was... I remember looking up at it, it was a really heavy sail, like... Um, I think the jib on that was like 12 and a half ounce uh, Dacron. It was a super heavy, it's like storm sail heavyweight uh, material that was being used on this um, quite small headsail for this uh, Volvo 60, Whitbread 60, sorry. And um, yeah, now how did I do it in the end? <clears throat> I remember pulling on this and pulling on that and trying to turn the boat around and trying to do all the things in the world. In the end, the answer was cut the sheets. To get when you get into that situation where it's like this, uh, this wine, it's like a, a wine glass in a spinnaker, but it's your headsail on the roller furling stay. That's the situation you're dealing with. And uh, what I did in the end is I cut the sheets. Um, yeah, that was it. I, I cut I cut the sheets, and then suddenly, without any weight and without the bagging effect of the sail, it was able to. Um, exert enough force to undo itself off the stay and now it's just this giant flag which is flagging away from the boat and we were we were going downwind by this point to try and deal with this issue so the sail then unrolled itself out in front of the boat and when it was out in front of the boat then we could roll it up um, not perfectly because obviously it's got no sheets attached to it but we could roll it up somehow um, and that just wasn't possible with where it was at before because uh, there was no way we we're going to be hoisting something up and wrapping it around the sail because the sail has got such volume and such um, power. You know, it, it, half the sail is unwound above the uh, one third of the way up the stay and it's got it's going to need a, 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 a halyard to be wrapped around it like going probably 10, 11 feet diameter around the stay and around all the sail to get round for the next turn of what you propose for winding a halyard down from the top. So you've got to deal with the fact the sail's totally out of control first, and that is cut the sheets, uh, let go of the furling line, and just let it do whatever it wants to do. And then you've got to deal with uh, when it comes back in, um, perhaps then that's when you have the the halyard ready. I can imagine some kind of, I'm, I'm trying to think through this as I'm going along. If I had time and I had thought pattern in my head, I would be, and like somebody else's boat has got a head saw which has gone completely out of control. The sheet's still attached. The furling drum is still attached, but the sail has ripped apart, ripped open <clears throat> above the point where the, um, the clue is rolled onto the forestay. And it's too big to just get a halyard and wind it around. What would you do? I'd go onto the boat, 
I would um, go into the rope locker. I would get ropes, which are probably um, at least twice as long as the boat, which should give you enough length to go, uh, you know, from the top of the forestay and do all sorts of wrapping stuff and get to the bottom. Remember how big circumferences are and how much um, how much uh, line you're going to use lose in the in the process. I would go on the boat. Find a halyard which goes to the, at least up to the jib position, if not to the spinnaker position. Spinnaker position might be better. I'd get two ropes which are at least twice the length of the boat. I'd tie bowlines in the end of them, connect both of them onto the uh, halyard, haul the halyard up in the air, and then I would start passing the lines. Uh, and then the, the sail is out of control. So then I would uh, let go of the furling line and let go of the sheets, but probably cut the sheets or get the sheets off the corner of the sail. Um, because you just you can't have the weight of the sheets on it because the weight of the sheets will create inertia in the clue which will then make it bag and parachute and you need all the inertia and the weight to go off the off the clue so it can you can work its way out straight so get rid of the furling line get rid of the sheets that were on it let it flap like crazy until it's all in on one side of the stay and then use the furling line, which you have now cleared from the bottom while it was doing all this. You're super low down, putting a new line onto the furling line, and then um, uh, then and then <laughs> start winding that line, those two lines down from the top. That's the only thing I can think of. Um, get it, get it furled back up using the normal furling system as fast as you can, but without a clue on it, without you know sheets on the clue, and then doing that maypole dance of those two lines coming down from the top. I think uh, I think that's my best idea, John. Um, cutting the sail, I can see what you're talking about. Cutting the sail, which is at the top, is wound out in a completely different orientation to the bottom of the sail because of the way it's done. But that's just going to make a mess trying to get that down. And, and as you say, who could get up there to do anything about it anyway? I can remember uh, being in um, oh, Fuerteventura, I guess it was. And we had the uh, southern wind, uh, a southern wind vessel, 90 foot super yacht um, moored like at our stern or, or rather berthed at our stern. Can't remember exactly what the orientation of the marina was at the time, but um, a lot of wind coming through. We were getting jostled around pretty badly, and then in the middle of the night, you just start hearing this massive whip cracking. Just the awfulness of like, there's a big headsail is uh, free and loose here, and um, we went on deck, and indeed, this big 3DI um, reaching headsail that was rolled up on the front of this boat was out, and uh, and they were starting to come to terms with, with dealing with this thing. And I spoke to the captain later on, and what happened for them was that uh, water had ingressed into the controls for their hydraulic furling unit. And it just he said that his um, berth was relatively close to the, the, the bow of the boat, and he was able to hear what was going on. And um, suddenly in the middle of the storm, he hears the uh, the furling gear starting to work, and the it, it unwinds itself. It unwinds itself right in the middle of the storm. And you can imagine, I think the sail actually was in one piece, even though the forestay was probably like 120 foot. But... Um, it was pretty wild. It was pretty wild. Um, and uh, I remember the, the rigger, uh, she did an amazing job um, getting up into the rigging and getting that thing secure, along with a lot of other actions from other folks. But uh, yeah, I, I hope that's somehow useful, John. I hope there's something that uh, can add to it there. Pull two lines up the halid, uh and then and then twizzle them around the mast like a maypole. And um, let's see. Let's see if that can help you out. I hope there's some use there for you. Um, let's have a see. We've got some others here. <clears throat> uh, Jordan, Jordan Sang, uh, he says, I'm one of your uh, YouTube followers, and I just listened to your recent Questions and Tangents podcast, in which you mentioned that you have an unfinished book about sailing solo around the world. Among other things, I'm a writer who occasionally writes on sailing topics. 
So an idea popped into my head. What if I help finish that book as your ghostwriter in exchange for you give me a little training consultation in offshore performance boats? That's a very interesting idea, Jordan. Um, it's He's sent also some brilliant pictures. He's um, building a Class 40. I can see it in... Uh, in the boat shop here it looks fantastic super wide body great design kick up rudders um it looks like it's gonna be ace i really hope that you can bring that through to fruition um and, and enjoy that for yourself uh, jordan um remember the global solo challenge is coming up uh you could get that perhaps in there if you can get yourself together in time but getting a boat to the start line as we all know um way harder sometimes than getting it to the finish line but um yeah i do have this book interestingly over christmas i kind of got to a point where like either i need to do something with this or i need to throw it away so it's all right in front of me right now and you might remember that the first i know five or six of the podcasts that i ever did um were on the subject of me doing the solo around the world thing and i did that deliberately because it's a service which i'm able to pay for and get with the podcast where the things that are being said on the podcast are then transcribed by an AI and you get it back as a text document, which is, I, I knew that that was areas of the book that I wanted to include. I hadn't yet written them. So I just spoke my way through it on the podcast, then got the transcript and essentially I've got something to start with. But uh, the book that I want to write is one that's based on the going around the world thing, but is based on this concept of grit, which uh, I understand is something that people in PR really look for now and people that they hire, that it's better to hire a woman who's been raising children on her own and has demonstrated true grit rather than get someone who's been like to Everest base camp once and they paid five grand to go, you know, they've been dragged up there. It might have some kind of like laurels with it that you don't get from raising a child on your own, but in terms of actual difficulty and the uh, required tenacity to keep on going and keep on going with a task that's better demonstrated by raising a child on your own than doing something like getting to base camp so grit is something i really like kind of as a concept it's something i think fits in exactly with the kind of sailing that i've done with the 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 kind of adventuring and voyaging that i've done and i think there's a way of taking the story of going around the world and taking from it lessons in grit things that i learned mistakes i made um you know Grit also in things like getting towards the edge of a nervous breakdown and dealing with it, dealing with uh, heartache, dealing with uh, separation from loved ones. There's lots of things that we have to find some kind of ability to get through in our lives. And sometimes it's not really a, a good primer on how you do that. It suddenly comes in as a wave as an adult and you're not really expecting it. And suddenly you've got responsibilities, you've got things you've got to do, things that you've got to uh, succeed in so that you can move forward and others can move forward with their lives. And you, you don't necessarily have the requisite skills or understanding of how to move to the next, the next step. And I, I think that there is something in sailing which promotes that, which promotes um, the ability to endure <clears throat> and to bring out the endurance capabilities of each person um, in a way that they perhaps... Um, don't even understand themselves. It's something that excited me about our bound. It's something that excited me about sale training. And it excites me about this now of doing digital content. Um, because there's not only the, the the practicalities of sailing, like exactly how you tie this knot or exactly what that rule is or, or all these other things that we talk about, but the personal development as well. There's not many sports which I think have the um, capability for meaningful change in a person that that sailing has you know there's uh, every person who's an expert in a sport has been through their own process of developing their hard skill and um, working at something and shaping their, their 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 craft over many many years to get to a very high level with it um, but often the thing that they then end up doing is in itself quite 
um what's the best way of putting this it's quite monochrome in in that like you could be you could end up being a brilliant fighter in in a in martial art but going to the dojo and practicing and training is not filled with the same level of excitement same life-changing experiences the same minute by minute um stress pressure joy friendship um uh, uh, physical danger physical uh heroism that that sailing often can you know so i think whilst you can have a personal personal experience of developing hard skill which is transformational sailing is clearly just the nature of what you're doing the physical forces that you're taking on it's like it's it's a normal sport like on steroids <laughs> poor poor analogy but you know what i'm saying it's like it's it's above and beyond and it it, it it incorporates very strongly this concept of endurance and tenacity of grit so i'm uh, i'm going to keep working on this jordan write to me again and say hi and let's have a see if you still got the ability to to do that um, i'm very interested to hear more about your class 40 and the uh the things that you're doing there he says i wrote an article on my class 40 project that'll be published in sale magazine in the new year good for you man that's not easy to get done that's awesome i'll read that he says, uh, he says, I've got another article in the works about sailors who are trying to make high-performance sailboats accessible to regular folks. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I, I know about that. I like the idea of making uh, elite sailing available to non-professionals. I do too. The, the problem with sailing in so many ways is that this thing, which I'm just waxing lyrical about, about, you know, oh, it's, it brings out the best in you and all the rest of it, it kind of somewhere along the line, it gets hijacked where it's all about like high-performance or don't bother turning up turning up you know it's like it's it's white sunglasses or 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 nothing it's uh i find that to be a great pity and i think youtube is where we can really get past that because the cameras are on board and it's um you get to see what everyday life is about i think as a as a, a youtube creator for sailing it's perhaps a little bit tempting to think that you have to make it more than it perhaps just is but just following along the everyday life of somebody that's living on a boat is very different and very strange for folks who live on uh, on the land all the time just portraying that is interesting if then those people are also really thinking about doing this and and they want to know about the details of the boat and the details of how it works and there's so much to learn on in sailing you know it's it shouldn't be hard to make content just based around that but unfortunately the way that it goes on youtube it it just often ends up in as we've said before, very fleshy uh, uh, thumbnails and, and titles and um, and very few people who are actually able to um, make a living from presenting sailing purely from the point of view of this is going sailing, this is what it's about, these are the skills. So if you're managing to make uh, your article stick with uh, publishers, they like what you're writing, good for you. And uh, let's, uh, let's chat some more, Jordan. And uh, maybe just having somebody who can be there as an accountability Nazi for me would be very very good because uh, you end up getting into lots of different projects all pulling in different directions and and things get finished but um yeah thanks very much for that John and good luck with your good luck with your build okay and then we got um, Marco here Marco Schroeder um he is this is very interesting when I had a look through this earlier on and it goes on a, a little bit but I think the uh the information that he's got here is is very very important so he's He's talking about the uh, podcast I did just a little while ago about uh, Colin Golder, who unfortunately was the uh, person overboard in the Newport Bermuda race, lost his life uh, during that race. Um, and uh, we went slowly through the accident report, uh, which was issued by U.S. Sailing and, and tried to learn what we could from that. 
Uh, Marco uh, is referring to that here. He says, first of all, thank you for your interesting posts, videos, and precious seamanship content broadcasted on YouTube, Patreon, and podcast channels. Your podcast while approaching Iceland just thrilled me. I listened to it just after waking up in the morning and it was pure cinema for me. Good for you, man. I need to go to Iceland as well soon with my westerly. Please keep going with all that nice stuff, mate. You're certainly on the right path. Man, it's westerly city here. You know, I had that little westerly consort and I sold it uh, about a year ago now to a young man who's making good use of it, uh, much more than I possibly could. But there's so many people that um, access my stuff through that... um, that that uh, vector through that Wesley consort and the videos I did about that. Um, I, I'm sure if I just got myself a 35 or 40 foot boat or something and just was on that, I'd have so much more success <laughs> on YouTube than the boats I've got. Uh, Westerly owners, the Westerlies, I do love the Westerlies. I got to say, there's something about them which um, just makes makes me very happy. But anyway, what we got here, Marco? He says. Um, I collected three potentially interesting subjects for your next Q&A session. Well, here we are. Let's have a see what they are. He says, number one, your podcast about the Colin, Colin Golders case of man overboard during the Newport Bermuda race in 2022 made me very sad. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's the first thing always in this, right? We try and look at the details and we try and learn from it, but there's a family involved in this. There's, there's people who have been left without their loved one. That's, that is, as you say, incredibly sad. Um, but it also made me uh, uh, think and reconsider my own strategies. I am currently planning to add an MOB rescue and lifting system to my own boat, which is called Sailing Yacht. Hmm. Yeah, you get Hinnerika. Hinnerika. H I N N E R. Hinner, and then I K A. Hinnerika. Um, he's going to add this uh, this equipment to his emergency gear on board. The system is called a Moji ME One. And there's a video here. We can go and have a look online. All right, sure. And their website is emojiretungsystem.com. Retungsystem, retungsystem. Okay, so there, it's in German, clearly. Let's try and see if we can explain a German man overboard system on a podcast using only the power of words. So from the graphics which uh, have been included in the uh, email here that Marco sent, what you're basically looking at is there's a, a Peli case on deck, which you pull a pin that then releases it from its uh, little uh, enclosure on the deck of the boat. You open the Peli case and you grab out of the Peli case a much more delicate, but it's the major part of the equipment. It's a more delicate package, but it's inside this Peli case, so it's secure on deck. This package then looks a bit like a big attache case, all in yellow and uh, all clearly inflatable. Um, you throw it in the water, it's water activated and suddenly it expands out until you've got what looks to me to be like two major um, pontoons which are inflated, which are connected by a raft essentially. It kind of looks a bit in this like they're also inflated as well. There's lots, kind of like a an older style inflatable mattress but with the two tubes on the outside much bigger and much more uh, prominent than the, than the ones in the middle. Um, but woven all through these inflatable uh, bladders and uh, coming together uh, on either side in a kind of um, uh, bridle system on either side are these uh, bits of webbing, which then means that when you're lying in between those two major noodles with this raft of uh, raft of um, whatever that is, closed cell foam or semi-inflated or solid um, um, ribs underneath you, um, those bridles can be brought together by an overhead lifting hook. And then when you get picked up, it's like you kind of picked up and like almost in one of those stretcher things that they pick uh, dolphins up in, you know, it's kind of like a, a giant um, raft thing, inflatable 
inflatable platform thing you'd have at the beach that's then got webbing around it enough that you can pick somebody up in it, like kind of wrapping them up in a, uh, a little one-ton uh, one um, dumpling. Um, is it useful? <laughs> this is my question. Um, the situation that they were in with uh, Colin going over the side of the boat um, in the Newport Muda race, it might have been. Um, I really like things that you can throw like properly throw uh, over the side of the boat. And to, to clarify that, yeah, there are some things which are like a little tricky to get away from the boat. If you get a horseshoe life buoy, there's there's no weight in it. It's got a drogue attached to it. It's got a light and a whistle attached to it, but it's made of closed cell foam. So if there's a breeze blowing and if it's got a rope attached to it, you can't throw it very far. If something's completely separate from the boat and is eminently slingable then you can kind of let it go and and hopefully get it out to your victim even if that should be that you're throwing it into the wind this has definitely got that written all over it um the pelly case that it's in from the size of the uh, hands which are operating the pelly case is one of the big ones like suitcase style so it's kind of a large thing um getting that something that big out to somebody i can see that the bladder size on either side means that it's got quite large co2 cylinders on it um again there can be a mechanism associated with this which uh has got a lot of weight with it the amount of webbing that's in there has also got weight with it so i would imagine something we've got something that's hitting the water next to you that's like i don't know let's say 20 or 30 pounds so you can heft it but if you're not very strong you're not going to heft it very far um you then have got a raft where you are in the water which is a, a good start right you've got something inflatable and large which you can get onto and it looks like you've got little pull tags that you pull which then get the uh the bridles uh out and ready for lifting or a rescue swimmer can come and move an unconscious victim into the um kind of uh i'm, I'm struggling to understand how to sort of describe that you know yeah those things that they move dolphins in it's that kind of, that kind of thing when they got dolphins on the dry land it's an unusual shape to be in the water and then to have to kind of name it as a what it is it's two pontoons that are connected together by a series of other pontoon looking things that are underwater um i'd be very interested to see it in operation i'm going to go to the website and have a look at that and i'll report back uh, I, I like that it's something that you can get in the water and then you can start doing something to help yourself. But in that way, it's not very different from the John Boy or the, the Dam... Well, not the Dam Boy. Dam Boy is just a, uh, an inflatable uh, Dam Boy. But the John Boy is something which is like a little triangular nest with uh, three pylons coming up uh, over that nest with a, a high flag on them and a, a retroflector tape and the rest of it. So either of these two things give you what you need first, which is a place to rest a place that's easy to identify. It doesn't look like there's any um, anything that goes up in the air off this one. There's no inflatable column with a, a Oscar flag on it or anything like that. So you're not going to have very much better uh, visual on the person in the water from this going in with them. But it's pretty big um, and, and maybe they can find it in the water. The problem is still, uh, how do you get out the water? Uh, the images I'm looking at here, it's a series of them kind of comic uh, styly from 1 to 12. And by number 8, we see a rescue swimmer uh, getting into the raft with the person. And it's telling us that it can take maximum number of two people at 240 kilos, um, like 500 odd pounds. Uh, number 9 of these little comic strips is indicating that a solo person in the side can get hold of the two bridle connections on either side. And then... The next picture, number 10, is just like a boat in the background and a hook 
and then the rescue mechanism in the water with the person in the rescue device hooking those two bridles onto a hook that's conveniently uh, come into their realm. And that, I think, there is the problem. What's that bit? Let's read back through a bit more of the email so you don't get too far on. But it's... um. He, he says that if there's one system that he trusts, that uh, it would be this this Moji, as it's called, M-O-J-E. This is Marco saying this. Um, today, I uh, I still have it, but the only reason is that I just could not find any other system until now. Um, oh, he said he used to have um, simple yellow horseshoe life boys. Um, but I, I, I concentrated in the first years of my sailing uh, on spending my money on the onboard keeping equipment. Absolutely right. Such as proper life jackets, safety lines and safety tethers, all of which is crazy expensive. You go and buy those um, those uh, flat bits of tape that run from front to back with the uh, retro reflective stuff in them that's sold by Witchard. Yeah, there's hundreds and hundreds of euros goes into that stuff. So, yeah, you're right. You've got to save your money to buy your onboard keeping equipment. And then we can discuss later on how to get you back on board, put more budget into that later on. Um, he says, my point is when I now reflect again on your discussion about the recent Bermuda race accident, I ask myself if the Moji lift would have possibly made a significant difference. I finally come to the conclusion that also a Moji system for sure would not have been a full guarantee for a successful rescue, but chances to lift him on board again alive probably would have been significantly higher because Colin would have got the chance to lift himself early out of the cold water and definitely would have been more protected from the stern going up and down following the sea state. Um, am I missing something here? Uh, however, I would have been very interested to hear what you think about the Moji system in general and how you would evaluate this specific case. Okay, so I like this system, and I've, I'm making sure I'm not missing something in the description here, but the Moji system can't get you out of the water because <laughs> unless the Moji company is supplying that hook that comes down from the sky... Um, what you've got is a raft with a lot of excellent webbing on it. And as you say, good for getting somebody at the side of a ship ship. This is brilliant, right? You could, this would be really, really good because it would save you from all those bounces up the side of the ship and the, the, the sharpness of the, the rust and the, 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 uh, the barnacles on the side of the ship and all the rest of it. But in terms of Colin's situation, um, I don't think there's anybody on deck on that boat who was in a situation as to go out as, as a rescue swimmer. Um, if they'd thrown this unit to him, he would have what got into it, mm. and then they would have brought the boat back to him, and then it would have been a question of getting the halyard through the eyelets on the lifting system. Okay, I can understand all that. It would have basically been impossible to do it at the stern of the boat because the halyard you'd be using would be a, a spinnaker halyard or a jib halyard, which has then been wrapped around the mast and then is going aft. And even if you use the main halyard whose sheave exits you know facing aft you'd have been pulling you'd been pulling him into the boat so roughly um there'd be so much horizontal force in that pull that uh, he might well have like gone up and then swung massively over the cockpit and and towards the the deck forward of the cockpit so uh, i'm not sure if it's they would need to have trained with it. That's the thing, right? They just, they would need to have trained with it. I remember that Colin was a little overweight. So he'd have been uh, hundreds of pounds inside this thing that's now hanging from a mast, which is, it's a 40 foot boat. So it's a 55, 60 foot rig. Um, you've got a lot of line. You've got a lot of weight. You've got people that are, you know, trying their best. But um, 
it's still that problem of getting connected to it. If they could get the boat to him and they could get it connected on, I think they could lift him up with this onto the side deck at the shrouds. I would definitely say that. I think the the rescue method they were trying to use at the back of the boat definitely wouldn't have worked with this. Um, it would have been extraordinarily difficult. If you imagine a line coming from the top of the mast and then going over the rear guard wires or they're half removed or whatever, and you're standing on the sugar scoop and you're telling somebody at the mast or on the, the, at the front end of the cockpit, okay, grind, grind, grind. And they're trying to grind somebody up out of the water with a halyard that's on coming from the top of the mast. Like, that's a big ask. So I think this uh, Moje system, uh, M-O-J-E, uh, this German system, um, would be a very, very good option coming outside the ship. I think it'd be very good for alongside the ship uh, lifts. I think it's... Um, I think it's got a lot of good things going for it. I would love to see the manufacturers put an extra inflatable bladder on it that gives it some height. Remember, on a big ship at sea, you can look down from the bridge and see a very long way. So something that's big and flat and rectangular and yellow like this system when it's in the water is brilliant. But if you're on a yacht at sea, you're very low down and you can't you can't see things that are flat to the water. So you won't be able to see this very easily from a distance. So an extra inflatable pylon on it would be excellent. And then just, yeah, everybody's got to try and work on how to get somebody out the water or more particularly uh, somebody getting themselves out the water, which, you know, if you could, <clears throat> there are some ways of doing it, but it's, uh, you'd have to have like a block and tackle, like basically permanently rigged from the top of the mast down to the side deck with, you know, like a, a some kind of clip you can get onto quickly. And then I, I don't know, like it's, it's almost too impossible to, to think of it certainly couldn't be rigged quickly it suddenly couldn't be there all the time but uh i was not aware of this system before marco so thank you very much for bringing it to my attention so i'll put the link in the um in the description for the podcast you maybe go and have a look at that we'll hear some other people's opinions has anybody ever used this has this been used in a situation and proved very successful i like the idea of getting somebody horizontally in the boat but i don't like the idea of being in a inflatable raft flat with the surface of the water in big seas uh, i think that could be uh it could be a very rough ride. Um, I'll finish off your uh, email here, Marco. It's got a few bits. We'll come back and see if anybody else has got some interesting, um, any interesting uh, d- uh, discussion about that. Um, he says in, in part two of his email, I, uh, a few weeks ago, I ordered a new set of sails, main and jib from Raleigh Tasker for my Westerly consort. I still use the original ones until this summer, now being more than 35 years old. Excellent. That means this next set of sails is going to do you to like, might be that, 2058, perfect. Uh, after long discussions, evaluations, and investigations, I have uh, I have the additional lines around the mast. The Dutchman system seems to be quite common. Hang on, I missed something here. After long discussions, evaluations, and investigations, I have uh, finally decided to go for a Dutchman type of mainsail. Uh, the main reason is that I'm not convinced of lazy jacks and lazy bags because of all the usual struggle with the battens during the hoisting and all the additional lines around the mast. The Dutchman system seems to be quite common in the US and in the Netherlands, so I was wondering if you have ever come across a Dutchman mainsail and therefore may have any experience or point of view to share with us. I decided to give it a try anyway because there is actually not much there to lose. If the system doesn't work, I could still apply a lazy jack system to my boat later, but I just can't figure out why the Dutchman system would not be a fantastic feature to have on a small 29-foot westerly cruiser. Okay, I'm going to clip, click on your link because I do not know what the Dutchman system is. So I'm going to learn what I can in the next couple of minutes and I'll come back to you and tell you what I think. 
Okay, so I've had a look through for five minutes. I had a look at the uh, Dutchman system. I got to say right off the bat, I've never heard of this before, which doesn't mean anything. It just means I haven't heard of it. Um, it's certainly in a couple of uh, sailing magazines. I see that Sail World has done a, an article on it. So for those who are not going to be clicking on the links and uh, are only listening to this as a podcast, what are, what are we talking about here? So Lazy Jacks is a, a simple rope system which allows you to collect up your mainsail. It's really suited to fully battened mainsails. If you try and do it on a, a mainsail which has only got leech battens, then you can end up with <clears throat> a lot of the sail captured, but the, the back end of it's going to be kind of bit out of control. You've got uh, a bridle system coming up on port and starboard side of the of the boom and going up to a position normally just somewhere above the first uh, spreader or approaching the second spreader, it depends on the side of your mast, size of your mast. But that kind of branching root-like system coming from a single point above and coming down to three or four points on the boom gives a cascade of lines which are able to collect and direct the sail down into a, a, a messy but uh, functional stack on top of the uh, boom. The Dutchman system, basically you put uh, lines of grommets up the mainsail um, every two or three feet apart uh, measuring along the luff and then they go up and connect onto either your topping lift or to a line that you've rigged from the crane end of the boom up to the near the, the top sheave on the on the mast. Um, those that that line that um, that uh, topping lift it uh, then has uh, vertical monofilament lines that run down and lace through the grommets all the way down to the bottom of the mainsail. And then they've got a patented little system at the bottom where those monofilament lines are adjusted, and there's a little bit of a uh, suspension and adjustment system in there so basically when you let the mainsail go or bring it down to a reef it's going down like a roman blind the uh, the the vertical pieces of line stay exactly where they are and the mainsail gets hoisted up and down it so i've never seen that before um so i'm coming at this completely cold um i think in the discussion of how lazy jacks works there was a lot made of like how difficult it is to hoist a mainsail up through lazy jacks i've got to say i've i've been through all of the problems which lazy jacks can uh, <laughs> can provide and i'm doing that with a square top mainsail with a big angled uh gaff batten which is holding that square top out so it's basically like hoisting a yard on an old gaff rigged boat with the jack staysail already made up into it so you've got a, a very interesting shape that you're trying to post up between this super narrow gap on the lazy jacks but on a big boat because it becomes so critical that you do it correctly like you really can't get that the uh, the sail stuck in it and then have to let it all back down let it all back up when you're hoisting sails that weigh you know 100 kilos um, so what you do is you get very good at recognizing the fact that the main will only be hoisted with the wind on one side of the boat or the other, and that the leeward side lazy jacks can be completely removed, eased off, and then secured at the gooseneck, which means that they're not in the way. So you don't get them caught up on things. Um, and then chit chat about them getting caught in the spreaders when jiving. Well, only if they've been released when they shouldn't be released, which is during the pre pre jibe and they're flaking around they're flying around in the air and uh get caught around the spreader so there are issues with lazy jacks um if you use them correctly you won't have an issue where you're trying to post the mainsail up through the narrow gap between the two lazy jacks because you won't have both of them on when you're doing that so that's the wrong way of using the system but as they correctly point out there is a huge amount of chafe issues from uh from lazy jacks because the mainsail's bouncing up and down on the uh, boom for hours and hours and the lazy jacks are solid up against the boom and unmoving so you've got a moving thing and an unmoving thing 
and the laser jacks are certainly in my world are often made from dyneema which is very smooth and soft but it's very strong and it cuts through sail material very quickly so um look on the boats that i'm on um, we don't have topping lifts we either have power vangs that hold the boom up or on the open 60 the the um the boom goes down that the uh the gooseneck is actually on the deck just off of the the base of the mast so you've got um a, a very a radical different radically different setup than you've got on a normal boat to that end we don't have a topping lift and there's there's nowhere to connect it you'd be connecting a piece of line and the kind of strength of the line that you'd need to do this on a boat like that it would have some diameter to it and that diameter is then going to mean drag um what's my cold cut on this my cold cut on this is it probably works great when the monofilament is easily stronger than the thing it's trying to reef Does that makes sense so if you've got you know the mainsail that's on a 29 foot westerly and you've got some good heavy monofilament that's great everything's kind of well balanced against each other it's not a problem if you're going to be doing this on a big race boat or a boat with big sails, you're probably going to end up moving over to something like Dyneema. And then you do get into a problem because if anything goes wrong with the system, <laughs> it's uh, it's going to bind up super tight with things that can take thousands of pounds of load. And you're going to never get it out of that situation, which is exactly what you get into with lazy jacks or anything else. Lazy jacks, when they're connected to a stack pack, which again is not really an option on a race boat, but is definitely an option in most other situations, a highly desirable thing for me to have on a solo boat. The open 60s have basically the origins of a stack pack, but it's more like a mesh. It allows the air and the water to pass through. Um, it, it's there to to really accommodate the sail during uh, the time the sail is down in, in flakes for, for reefs. Um, it's not really there as like a long-term solution. If you're leaving an open 60 with its main salon for a long time on a mooring or something, you would have another cover that went over the top of it to go over the, the mesh uh, uh, boom bag um, this system it's got some issues with uh, the, the Dutchman system it's got some issues with the amount of windage that's on those lines if you've got a lot of them um, I feel like they may be I'm trying to think of all the situations like if a halyard gets loose off the front of the boat and you're beating up wind and it gets around the rig and it starts to wrap itself around one of these vertical lines that's there that's that's tricky it's very tricky to deal with that when you've got lazy jacks it does happen um you have to go up the mast but at least you can pull the lazy jacks against the mast and and get hold of it and get the halyard back off it i'm not sure you could do that with um with this system so easily maybe you could um i think if you're flaking a, a spinnaker not flaking if you're dousing a spinnaker and it was coming in through a letterbox and coming underneath that system and into the uh, companionway I think that there's a good possibility that you could get the sail wrapped up in your, um, certainly the sail and the, and the jib halyard wrapped up in the vertical lines on the Dutchman system. Like there's a few things like that. I feel like there's quite a lot of line at play there, but um, I'd like to I'd like to sail a boat with that on. I've literally never heard of that before. It's totally new for me. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. I think it looks good. I, I'd say this. Uh, I think for a 29-foot westerly, I think go for it. I think it looks awesome. I think the fact that you can just um, flick off the uh, the halyard and it all drops down on the boom like you're sailing a, a junk or something, I think that's actually a super awesome uh, way of doing things. I think on a bigger boat, there's probably a reason they're not doing this, and I'm kind of biting around the edges of it, but I haven't quite got my head around exactly why it might be such a huge issue. The issue is when it's um, things in the air that you can get stuff wrapped around. That's uh, something we really try and avoid. 
um, be, because it's just so difficult to get out to the middle of the mainsail to deal with things. It's a really hard place to get to on the boat. Um, getting into the fore triangle is possible. Getting into the center of the main is possible, but um, it's a very dynamic situation and it's not one that you want to have something stuck up there. But like compared to adjusting to an in-boom roller furling situation or an in-mast, God help us, roller furling situation to make that conversion to your boat, um, if, you, if your choice is between um, the Dutchman system and the Lazy Jack system, I'd go with the Dutchman if you want to try it out. The good thing is that come the end of it, if you don't like it, all those extra grommets will only be gold for keeping water out of the flaked up the main, which is a massive issue I face on these big boats. And I'm always thinking, why don't we put more grommets in the mainsail uh, so that water can drain out? Because it's so damaging when it's sitting in there for long periods, especially on big sails with a very great weight of water. But um, yeah, I, I, um, I like it. I want to see more about it. I'd love to hear if anybody's got it and any of the issues that come with it. Um, I think if you run a lazy jack system very well, it's, uh, it probably has minimal issues. Um, I think if you run the Dutchman system badly, it probably can create a lot of issues. So uh, yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, convinced one way or another. But Marco, please uh, tell us how you're getting on with it and uh, if it's any any use to you. Um, okay, next uh, next one here. We're just coming up on an hour, but we'll we'll keep going. Get these out of the way. Um, Oh, someone's saying, have we got a discount for Marlow Ropes? I, I mentioned that in the past. It's something I want to do. I have a I have a discount with Marlow Ropes when I'm going buying huge amounts for um, the race boats. Um, I have not got an okay back from them to be able to offer a discount onto podcast listeners and YouTube um, supporters or YouTube subscribers. It's um, I think we can do it. Let me have a chat to them. The, the thing when you've got people like North or Marlow or Raymarine or whatever – they they don't really need to give discounts because um, what their product is is doesn't it's so good it speaks for itself and it certainly doesn't need to be like sold as a lost leader but they always give twenty five points thirty five points away to their agents so there's normally a way we can do something in there so let me get back onto that's from uh, Jesse Jesse Rissa hi Jesse and um, I would uh, I will get back to you and see if we can uh, do a little bit more on that for that would probably be for uh, Patreon uh, supporters like you Jesse. Um, that's really where I'm going to try and, um, focus all of that stuff so that we can, uh, we can convince people to go and, um, and, uh, and support the podcast from my point of view, if everybody that listened to the podcast was putting that $5 a month in, um, I wouldn't have to worry about, uh, the, the, uh, debts that I have left over from spa and I wouldn't have to worry about what's going to happen next. Um, I would be able to relax, um, this kind of content, obviously it's, uh, time, time consuming to make it and equipment required to make it and all the rest of it. Um, and it's a little bit tricky sometimes to, uh, to, to justify to yourself like, okay, I'm going to sit down. It's going to take two or three hours to do a podcast here. And I got to do this extra content here and I got all that stuff. And and what's the, what's the outcome? It's like, well, in the end, hopefully it'll come good and there'll be, you know, there'll be a steady income from this. We're not at that point yet. So uh, anybody consider that five grand, five grand, (laughs) I wish that $5 a month, that'd be uh, very, very helpful um, as I set off on this new adventure in 2023 of making only this uh, content. But what we'll we'll try and do is focus as many useful things as possible over on Patreon uh, to make the uh, investment worthwhile. A couple more, Uh, Eric Grand here. Uh, he's saying, uh, I'm just about to listen to your podcast, number 81. My grandmother on my mother's side survived the Halifax explosion and she shared with me her experience. Wow. She lost several of her sisters in the disaster as well. Oh, I am sorry. 
looking forward to listening to it well you've listened to it by now no doubt eric i'd be interested to get your feedback um if for those who haven't uh, listened to that podcast uh, episode number 81 was about the halifax explosion the largest non-nuclear explosion ever created by human beings yes it's not as big as some of the volcanoes and things that have gone off but that's quite a different magnitude um the halifax explosion caused by a simple um port to port starboard starboard kind of situation between two vessels in the harbor um, early on in the 20th century the problem was one of these vessels when they came into contact was uh, transporting huge amounts of munitions which then exploded killing 2,000 people um, uh, injuring 9,000 people and 20,000 people uh, left with no homes because it was um, it's at that time in the world and the, the place in the world the houses were all made of wood and they all just got blown down so many people made blind because they'd come to the windows to look at the two boats that were jammed together in the harbor and one of them was on fire and then this massive explosion you know they, they found like parts of the anchor of one of the boats like miles away it was a huge huge explosion i i, I read with interest that um when the um blasts went off at nagasaki and hiroshima they actually described the magnitude of them not using the megaton descriptions that we would think of now for nuclear yield but um in terms of multiples of the uh, Halifax explosion so like the first big nuclear weapon that was dropped in Japan was described as five times bigger than the Halifax uh, explosion so I'm glad that your grandmother was not caught up in it as well Eric um, it's uh, it's a pretty incredible story when you get into it um, Bruce Williams here long-time listener he's pointing out to me that Eric Andera um, uh, posted uh, to me uh, about me rather to to his uh, Facebook pan, uh, Facebook people um, he says, one of my patrons made me aware of this gentleman, Mr. Chris Major, doing a reaction video on my Encountering Storm Force 10 video. While recording, he was sailing his 85-foot sloop single-handed towards Iceland in gale conditions. Now that is badassery at its finest. And then I get a lot of decent emotion uh, emojis there. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to find ways to reach out to other YouTubers and bring them together. Uh, we'll we'll see what we can uh, do in that way. I've now got contact with uh, Eric. We're starting to email backs and forwards. It would be super awesome to be able to meet up with him and uh, and take him on my kind of boat and show him my kind of sailing. And uh, I'm sure he, like I, is very keen to learn and to um, to to uh, understand more about sailing. I would like to hear more about what he's been doing on his boat and and his YouTube channel and his. Uh, uh, cinematography and all the rest of it and answer any questions he's got and um, just having people working together that'd be great so thanks Bruce for putting that across my bows it's uh it's good to see that so right we're pretty much at the end of the uh at the the end of the comments for now um we're about an hour and a quarter in I'm going to put this one out then you can uh, hear it and uh give me your feedback um I do like doing these questions and tangents ones but I do need questions to be able to answer stuff on YouTube stuff over on patreon that's the major method anybody that's uh connected with me on youtube just send me your questions we get those um uh, tidied away as quickly as we can um and i'm looking to do a lot more with patreon in this uh this year now it's uh it's been a very scary transition from the the kind of business that i was running before into this new thing doing everything here on um on the podcast and uh, on youtube and patreon but i think we can make it work and um Looking forward to seeing what we can make happen in, in 2023. So I'm going to do another one of the ABC of Sailing um, uh, episodes in the next couple of days. Um, that's going to be going out. I'm going to try and um, 
focus in on what uh, I should do for I. I is for what in sailing. So I had a good think about this and I've, um, I've actually got here a book which is called The Mariner's Dictionary. That's the fantastic thing with having all of these wonderful books that were donated uh, in the Mariner's Library. And uh, I went through this and, and had a look. And, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of eyes. The inclination of the earth, the incidence angle, um, the uh, inch marie clause, a clause of an insurance policy covering loss or damage to the hull or machinery through the negligence of masters, charterers, mariners, engineers or pilots, or through any latent defect in the machinery or hull. There we go. That's just a, a freebie there. Ice boat, insurance, insurance hawser. Intercepts, intercostals, uh, Isherwood system, that method of ship construction in which the main framing is longitudinally uh, instead of transverse as in the usual method. The stringers are closely spaced and the transverse beams widely spaced. It is a very satisfactory and successful. You can see how it goes. Isobaric charts. This is what I came up with. I decided what we're going to do is we're going to do a podcast. Uh, it's called I is for Institutions. And that's, that's mainly because what I'm always trying to do is find the I or the J or the K or whatever it is that you're not expecting. But I think there's something to be said about what are the major institutions in sailing, um, the safety institutions, the insurance institutions, the, the rules, the, um, the Marine Coast Guard Authority, the RNLI in the UK, the Coast Guard in America, the RYA, the Storm Trisail Club. What's the position of um, sailing clubs in sailing anymore? It's changing, I think, rapidly. Um, there's uh, institutions online like the Facebook Yacht Club. There's Facebook groups which are fantastic to join and get more information from. It's it's changing all the time, and it might be interesting to to you know what's another institution? Maybe Eric Andera and his fantastic videos is another institution. These things didn't even exist 20 years ago. If you look at the institutions which now surround sailing and what we're doing, a lot of them literally didn't exist anymore. And yet others like the uh, International Maritime Organization or uh, World Sail or International Sailing Association. Um, they, they've been around for much longer. So let's have a chat through the institutions around sailing. Uh, some of them are there to support you. Some of them are there to educate you. Some of them are there to secure you uh, financially uh, with insurance. Um, they're all different. They're all available. They all have a part to play in what's going on at sea. And uh, it'd be good to, to chat around them so everyone's got the same uh, geography and they can learn different things from different people in different places but only of course if they're aware of what they are maybe you want to go to the royal squadron and wear a uh, uh, a blazer and chinos and um, deck shoes and uh, that's kind of what you're about but um, you wouldn't even know that's possible if we don't go through it so I is for institutions big sailing institutions if you got any ideas things that I should include in that please feel free to throw something in particularly something I might not come up with from my few examples there and we'll try and keep the education going as much as we can. But thank you very much for all your emails. As always, csmthemariner at gmail.com if you want to have a question answered. And I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.